Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 77 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Terry Jensen is one of only 14 accredited land consultants in Minnesota out of an industry consisting of over 18,000 agents. She's a past president of the Realtors Land Institute, a member of various planning commissions, a former vice president of real estate appraisal operations, an adjunct professor at the University of Nebraska, an advisory panel member of Women in Leadership, and a highly successful managing broker. There's more credentials in her resume, but you get the idea. Terry knows what she's talking about when it comes to land real estate. We're sitting with her today to talk about the ins and outs of 1031 exchanges. If you are interested in land, You'll learn something during this interview. Now sit back and enjoy. I am talking with Terry Jensen. Terry Jensen is uh, out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. She is a broker with National Land Realty. And a couple things that I got to mention is you have the ALC designation, which what is it out of 18,000 realtors in Minnesota? You're one of only 14 to have this designation. It's a credit <laughs> and, and a past president of RLI, which is the Realtors Land Institute. Um, tell me a little bit more about your background. You've got a, you've got a, uh, a lot of credentials there and, and I think you have an interesting background. So tell me a little bit about that, how you got to national land, how you got into real estate in general. <laughs> well, I started in 1984. I like to say I was 12. <laughs> um, I started out as an appraiser. Um, So I have a great background to be in real estate. And um, it got to the point where my clients who I, I'll back up just a pitch. Um, As an appraiser, I appraised um, residential, commercial, special assessment appeals, conservation easements, historic properties, you name it. And um, I did a lot of agricultural ground and it got to the point where my appraisal clients would call me, you know, nine months later, a year later, two years later, and say, can you list my property because we appreciated what you did, you did a great job, et cetera. And it's kind of like, you know, you kind of hit your head and go, duh, get your real estate license. And so I did that. And you have to work for someone else for two years in Minnesota before you can get your broker license. So I did that and and kept my, and I still have my appraisal license as well. I was about um, to ask that if you still had an appraisal license. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You don't give up licenses. No. So, I'm, I'm currently licensed as a broker in Minnesota and Nebraska as an appraiser and auctioneer in Minnesota. And so have a wide variety, you know, background. Um, Realtors Land Institute has been huge. I got to know a lot of the guys at national land through RLI and um, in 2012 I was approached by a company out of Nebraska to be their real estate and appraisal manager and it was at a point uh, in my career my our daughter was um, 
uh, out of school, out of college, on her own. My husband was retired, and it's like, sure, we can do do a new <laughs> new adventure. And so I did that for four years, and then both our dads died within three months of each other, and we decided that we needed to move back to Minnesota. So we did that in 2016, and I worked for a company that um, it was not a good fit, and they <laughs> I actually introduced them to um, somebody, to another company who actually ended up buying them, and um, I opened my own brokerage for a short time, and then National Land I talked with. I can't compete with the technology that National Land offers. I'm like, can't beat them. You've got to join them. (laughs) (laughs) And it has been wonderful. So um, National Land just provides so much for our agents and brokers that it's been a pleasure to, to be part of it. I'm, I'm, that's, I, I love hearing that. I'm waiting for the one that's like, man, I hate national land. No, <laughs> I've never had that. No, it's, I, I, I can't even imagine that happening, but no, it's good to hear. I, it's, um, it's good to hear that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're here today, today to kind of review 1031 exchanges. And it's an area where you have a lot of expertise. How long have you been working with 1031s? Well, really, since I started um, as a real estate um, agent. So probably in about 2005, um, you know, mostly, mostly when we end up working with somebody on a 1031, it's usually I have a property listed and a buyer comes forth who wants to, you know, do a 1031 exchange into the property that I have for sale. And it can also happen where the property that you're selling, the seller wants to do an exchange, um, so that they can, you know, defer their capital gains taxes. So it works both ways. And just for, a, because I, I love to take things up from the 101 level, um, walk me sort of through what a 1031 is, and then we can kind of jump into, you know, why somebody would utilize it, but just the structure of a 1031. Sure, sure. A 1031, um, it's IRS code section 1031, just to be technical. Um, it allows um, <laughs> landowners, owners of business and investment properties um, to defer payment of capital gains taxes by reinvesting all of the proceeds from the sale of any, you know, currently owned property that would be called the relinquished property um, into a like kind property, which is called the replacement property. So it's basically... Anytime you want to defer capital gains taxes, you know, if those taxes are sufficiently high enough to warrant exchanging instead of paying the capital gains tax, um, it allows you to put all those capital gains back into the replacement property. So it's, it's a way to, taxes. I was going to say it's a way to sell your property. I mean, I, I was going to say land, but it's property. It's a way to sell a property and buy a similar property, but defer the capital gains that you made off of that property by selling. Correct. And it it's income producing to income producing. So in, those kind of properties would include anything from single family residence, residential properties that are rented out, you know, multifamily like duplex, triplex, fourplex apartments, uh, commercial properties, retail, industrial ag land, oil and gas interests, mineral rights, water rights, air rights, 
uh, easements in perpetuity, vacation rental properties, um, DSTs, um, and DSTs are a way to participate in a 1031 exchange without being the, you know, the complete owner of a property. A DST will allow a number of investors to participate in the ownership of a property, like um, say a large medical building um, and just have passive benefits instead of being the direct donor. I was gonna say the DSTs, do those structure in with REITs? Um, they, they could, yeah. Okay. And it could be any type of um, rental property like residential or commercial. Okay, gotcha. So that's so somebody that a REIT could take advantage of a DST to exchange investments. I'm not going to say yes or no, because I don't know if I would <laughs> know the specific answer to that question. I've, I've been really curious about that one. And, it, and really, me being curious about that it has no relevance to me whatsoever. I'm just kind of curious about the structure within within yeah. how they move that stuff around. And I would guess it would be something like this. Um, but we're talking more on, a, on an individual level anyways, just because that's what we work with the most. And a lot of times when we hear about 1031s, it is in the case of land, just by the nature of what we work with. And a lot of our clients assume, I think, that you you have to move from land to land. And and I, I just thought of another thing I want to bring up. But so um, within that, what you're saying is with with a with a 1031, you can bump it from, let's say I had income producing, you know, uh, a farm, right? Like I'm growing corn or I'm growing a crop or something like that. Cause you rotate crops or whatever, but you sell that land and I could put that into say a commercial building or, or some other kind of income producing investment that involves real estate. Right. Correct. Gotcha. So, and I wanted to ask, and, and you, you kind of spoke to it already, but I just wanted to clarify it is that, um, and I guess I'll do it in the form of a question is, can you do this with your primary residence? No, it's that, <laughs> the short answer to that the is short no. answer is no. Yeah. So, so <laughs> and, and what well, are you already, you know, on your primary residence, you already have probably a, a, a tax deduction anyway of 250,000 per, you know, spouse. Um, and that could change, but um, it's not income producing. Um, so, and that's kind of like um, personal property is generally not included in a 1031 exchange either. So, yeah. Situations where say, I just want to throw a curveball at you here. Uh, primary residence is on the farm. How do those function with a 1031? You know, typically if, if I'm selling a farm and it's got a building site on it, um, I am going to try really hard to find out through planning and zoning if I can split that building site off. Um, about, I'd say between 70 and 80% of our agricultural ground in Minnesota, in areas that I work, <clears throat> excuse me, are sold to expansion farmers. And then that remaining, you know, 25 to 30% um, are purchased by investors and 1031 buyers. So um, most expansion farmers already have a building site and they don't want another one. Um, they want to buy land that produces income. So, um, so we try, I try really hard to get those split off, um, if it's at all possible. Gotcha. And that makes total sense. 
Um, so when we're talking about a 1031, we've kind of talked about what it is. It's, you know, buying and selling land, deferment of taxes. It's not a tax loophole. We were talking about this right before we started recording, right? It's not, it's not a way to avoid taxes. You're just deferring it. It's, it's a way it's, you know, you're, you're just moving the cartridge from one thing to another. And, yeah. and eventually when you sell, or if you sell, you're going to have capital gains, right? Well, unless you exchange into another income producing property. Right. You know, at, at you, you only pay the, the taxes at a time when that property is no longer producing income. So, so if you can... die, <laughs> you, <Right>. know, you <laughs> your, your heirs will get a stepped up basis and, you know, that, that may not be impactful. So, but, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So in, in, you spoke to just now, you said it, when they stop producing income. So you could still hold the land. And if you decided to say, stop farming or something like that, it stops producing income, would you be liable for the capital gains? No, I, I would say probably not just simply because land can always produce income. You know, it can be agricultural ground, hunting rec ground can produce an income. Um, vacant land that's ready for development can produce an income. So yeah, might walk a fine line, but. <laughs> I got you. I got you. So the process of a 1031, because it's a very deadline driven environment, right? There's, there's a lot of things that come up there. And, and, and like, if you miss a deadline, you got problems. Um, tell me a little bit about that process. What does that involve? Sure. Um, your timeline for a 1031 starts the day that you close on your relinquished property. In other words, the property that you're selling, the day that you close on that property that you sell, you have 45 days to identify a property or properties that you want to exchange into. Then you have a total of 180 days in which to complete the 1031 exchange. And that 180 days includes that 45 day identification period. And if you miss any of those, if you miss that 45 day time period, you cannot do a 1031 exchange. And then you're on the hook for capital gains because you've already engaged in the sale, right? Right. And in the 1031 exchange too, on the day that you close the sale proceeds, if you touch those proceeds as the seller, you cannot do the 1031 exchange either, basically. Um, a qualified intermediary, a QI, um, has to handle those proceeds. Um, and so you wanna be sure that whoever your QI is, is qualified to do that, that they're covered you know, by a fidelity bond, that they have E&O, you know, you know, that they're bonded, so that you know that they're a trusted, you know, entity that can handle this. And it could be an attorney um, or it could be a company, you know, like Land, Tur Land 1031 that National Land um, is involved with and um, who has qualified people. They can handle a 1031 exchange. They know how to do it. And um, so you, you want to be sure that you're working with reputable people. I was going to say that was sort of a, uh, a high level, you know, thing that, that we decided in national land was they are they're tremendously complicated. And it's like, if you just have one unqualified person or you step out of line in one way, 
it, you're really messing things up for a client. And so we put a lot of effort into g- gaining a partnership that would help us manage that and, and be a partner for 1031 exchanges. They're, they're a little difficult. And so I wanted to ask you up front on, on the, the initial side. So you're looking at selling land, right? And you probably discussed strategy already about like, okay, I'm considering a 1031 exchange. You probably talked to a person like yourself. Um, is there a bit of art to this where, uh, you might want to delay sale, push a sale back in order to make sure that you've identified an exchange property or, or is it sort of a gamble? Do you kind of go up front, you, you get the sale when you can manage the sale, and then you just hope you find the right place? Well, actually, if I list a property, that's one of the questions that I usually ask up front, you know, what are, what are you going to do with the money once you sell? You know, and that's oftentimes a question that people ask us. Well, if I, if I list with you and I sell it, what do I do with the money? Well, <laughs> you can do a 1031 exchange and avoid paying capital gains. When did you buy the property? You know, if it was, if you bought the property, if you bought a piece of ag land back in, you know, the 1980s, you probably paid two or $3,000 an acre. Well, now we're at, depending on where you are, um, Let's just pick South Central Minnesota. You might have a property that's anywhere from ten thousand to fifteen thousand an acre. Well, you have a huge capital gain, you know, <laughs> responsibility there. So, if they decide that if the seller decides that at the very beginning when we list the property, we talk to the seller, we find out they're going to do a ten thirty one exchange. We start looking immediately for replacement properties. We don't wait till the day that they close to have that 45 day time period. You know, you want to be sure that you have time to, you know, look at those properties and, you know, be able to exchange, you know, within the time frame. So you have more than 45 days if you're representing a seller. I got you. So it would, is there, is there the case that you might, def, you know, delay close or even, or even, reject an offer because you don't have a property identified? Um, You could, you know, and then it would be up to a buyer if they wanted to accept that or not. Right. You know, and, and sometimes it works out because from a tax standpoint, the buyer might, you know, not want to close until the next year or, you know, whatever it might impact their tax situation. So it, it's a give and take on both sides. I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about the, the current market that, that that we're in, because I think it might be applicable to to 1031s, where we're, we look at, you know, we have interest rates that have risen and we have people that are sort of, you know, some people might be locked in to where they're at. And, and it's harder for people that are new to market, people that want to acquire land for the first time to get into it because of the interest rate changes. And the fact that real estate values are still adjusting to those changes and people that already own existing land, does a 1031 right now become a more viable product than say in the past? Um, yes and no. Um, because right now, you know, truly we just, we just had a chapter RLI meeting and, um, one of the questions or one of the things that we talked about um, at our chapter meeting was, you know, how many, how many people are buying with cash and how many are getting financing? 
And the majority of the people, you know, said anywhere from 60 to 70% are, are paying cash. And so to me, 1031 right now, you know, we still have people doing it. Um, and that could be part of the cash people, but we don't know. So I can't give you a percentage on that. Yeah, I've been curious about that. Just I, I wondered how that impacted, say, the 1031 market. And you're right. Like it, that's one thing to bring up too, that you just talked about being part of RLI as 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 a land professional. You're regularly meeting with other land professionals and just talking about the industry and getting kind of that inside information. It's kind of I, I like to I like to notice those things, especially where it's a case where, you know, you get information that that is highly pertinent to land and and is helpful. Um, but when we're, when we're talking 1031s and like you said, most people are paying cash. So does that, is it an either or like if, if, if somebody's selling, you know, land to buy other land, that's a different thing. But if somebody's acquiring land nowadays, a lot of the time it's usually cash. Yeah, that, that was the consensus from the meeting that we just had. Got you. And and so a ten thirty one is the, is it the case that that those are really useful in cases of financing like so you're you're trying to buy and acquire another property and you're using financing to do it or are you just using proceeds so how does the, how does that whole function work can I mean when you well, said plan to buy well, a similar... to me it is kind of like a cash situation but like I said I I, I was trying to narrow it down for you if the, you know if there was a certain percentage of that cash buyer that was a ten thirty one buyer but we don't we don't just don't have access to that kind of data yeah yeah so how when when you would run a 1031 exchange you have to find a similar piece of property to exchange for what is sort of the cutoff at which point it is no longer a similar property and can a say higher value property be exchanged for if you make up the difference, like how does that whole structure work? Well, your property identification, there, there basically are three ways that you can do it. Um, you can identify properties within that 45 day time period. Um, you can use the three property rule. You know, you can just simply identify three properties. Um, you can use the 200% rule that allows you to you know, identify more than three properties so long as the uh, the fair market value of those properties doesn't exceed 200% of the sale price of the property that you're selling, of your relinquished property, or um, the 95% rule, which states that, you know, if you go over, you know, identifying the first two rules, then you have to purchase 95% in value of what you identified. So you have options in that identification period, you know, on what you're going to buy, but you do kind of have to say, you know, this is how I'm going to move forward. So two properties. Sorry, go ahead. Did that answer your question or did I confuse the? No, no. You gave me more more information to ask questions on. Now I get to hassle you about these. Uh, so with the with the exchange, you can go with two properties as long as the the you know aggregated value is not more than 200% of what you're selling and you can i you can identify you can identify three properties 
or that 200% rule, you can identify more than three properties as long as the value of all of those does not exceed 200% price of what you're selling. So these aren't the end exchange. These are just the identified properties. Right. Okay. Now I got you. And then, and then, sorry, you're about to say something. That was okay. That's okay. (laughs) <laughs> and so and then when you make the exchange too, you the exchange has to has to take up 95 percent of the value of the land you exchange for is that right well that that's that's one of the options okay that's one of them and and is there a, and i guess if you're going for it so i'm trying to trying to phrase it right and i'm going to stutter all over myself uh if if you have identified a piece of property are you able to do one that's higher value, just a single property that, that is higher value and then make up a difference on that? Or is that considered kind of like, nah? Okay, let, let, let me answer your question this way. Um, if you want to avoid all taxable gain in the, in, when you do an exchange, um, there are three ways you can do that. Um, the replacement property's fair market value has to be equal or greater than the fair market value of the property that you're selling, okay, of the relinquished yeah. property. That's one. Two, all of the exchange proceeds from the sale of the relinquished property must be used to acquire the replacement property, or the replacement property debt must be equal to or greater than the relinquished property debt to avoid capital gain due to debt relief. Gotcha. So, so you, you can step up but not down. Because if you step, if you were right. to buy something of lesser value, then you're yeah. you're giving yourself money there with capital. You know, you you get your capital gains, and that's what they're exactly trying to prevent. Correct. Perfect. And what is the amount of time that you have to hold the land before you can do a 1031? Um, or is there, or is there an amount of time? I'm it's a, a curiosity of mine because I'm thinking about multiple sales. Well, normally you would hold it for, you know, 1031s since it's income producing property. I mean, typically a holding period, and and this goes back to this, to a survey that NAR did, the National Association of Realtors. But um, most people who do a 1031 exchange, they are what I would say are medium to long holds. So the medium hold would be probably in that, oh, five to 15 year time period. And the long-term hold, um, like a lot of agricultural ground, um, is a hold from 15 years to decades. I mean, on the average, a piece of ag, ag land turns over once in 50 years. So that's why a lot of us who work with agricultural ground, hunting rack ground development. I mean, we cover a huge territory because unlike a residential realtor, you know, we can't stay within a 50 mile or 60 mile radius and make a living because it doesn't turn over that fast. So. Yeah. And I was, I was curious about the duration of hold because just thinking about it, like if I was, if I was running a 1031 exchange and say I got into a scramble where um, I couldn't identify a similar or like property and I found one at the last second, but it was okay, but not great. 
you know, thinking about strategically, like, could I use that as a holding, you know, a place to hold my capital gains until I identify a better property to do another capital, another 1031 exchange? I really don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I truly I don't because, you know, when I deal with um, agricultural ground, like I said, people, it's usually a, that medium to long term hold. Yeah. Um, I don't usually have somebody who goes, well, shoot, you know, I bought this today. I want to exchange it. it now that I bought it, I, I've had it for a month. I don't like it. Um, it. That doesn't usually happen because you've done all your due diligence ahead of time and you know what you're getting into. And it just doesn't happen that way. So you're saying most of your clients have their stuff together. See, I like to approach exactly. them. I don't have my things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, and our clients have it together because they work with people like me. <laughs> got you. Got you. See, I, I try to take the flake factor into my own head and apply that to other people. <laughs> um, so when when would you say, you know, a 1031 exchange is a tool in, in somebody's, you know, in, in their tool belt? There, and there's a lot of tools when it comes to buying and selling real estate. So and, and again, without giving advice on specific circumstances, right, because we can't do that because everybody has different circumstances. Um, what are the times that you, and, and the, the obvious answer here is going to be if you want to defer capital gains, right? Like that's, that's like the number one reason for a 1031 exchange. But what are the, the, what are the situations where you would, where somebody might want to do a 1031 exchange that you would talk them off the ledge? And, and what are some situations that you might encourage somebody to, to look at a 1031 exchange? Well, I'll just give you a couple of examples of, um, when we did the, uh, in 2015, um, our RLI group, NAR and several other organizations, um, actually did a fly in to D Washington DC to educate our legislators on what 1031s were all about. And as part of that, I was the current president of, um, Realtors Land Institute at that point in time. And so I put together information to provide and some of those were examples. And so these aren't all from me, but some of the reasons that people use a 1031 exchange into just trying to defer capital gains. Um, like one of my colleagues in Montana was working with a seller um, whose wife, you know, had just died. The seller's ranch, you know, was located in South Dakota. The seller wanted to move back to Montana where more family was located. So he's going to sell the property in South Dakota, purchase a ranch in Montana um, because he was way too young to retire at age 45. And by using a 1031 exchange, he deferred the capital gains on the sale of the South Dakota ranch. And he was able to use the entire sale proceeds, you know, the equity and savings for the purchase of the Montana ranch. So that's a situation where it's a relocation. Um, I also had another person, you know, from um, a consolidation and diversification of investments. There was a company that had several, in fact, I think it was seven diver diversified investments um, that they put into one property and doing the 1031 exchange allowed them to do that. So that's a consolidation situation. Um, you know, asset preservation. We had another one of our 
um, colleagues in RLI who there was an economic development taking place and the developer and the municipality, you know, wanted to voluntarily acquire land from a private property owner without the use of using eminent domain. And so the landowner used um, 1031 exchange in order to, you know, use the money from what the entity development entity wanted to purchase the property for and purchase another piece of property so that they still had a livelihood. So asset preservation, consolidation of, you know, and diversification of investments, relocation of investments, those are all reasons why people would use a 1031. Yeah. And I think where my head was, as you were talking through this, I, I started thinking about other types of diversification, such as, you know, you, you brought up the, the matter of, of a rancher moving from one state to another, but you could also end up in situations where, uh, you know, I know that a lot of ranchers will, will, will work until they're nothing but dust and boots. But, uh, like, you know, when somebody gets to where they're of an age where they're not going to manage the ranch anymore and, and my kids have moved away and, and they, they want to sell the ranch, but they still want income producing property. It could be a matter of selling the ranch and moving into a commercial piece of real estate or say like a duplex or something like that. that still provides income where you're just reallocating what you were invested in to begin with. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Income producing to income producing. That's the basic premise. Does the amount of income produced factor in or is that separated out just through income tax? So like if if the ranch had a yield of whatever, you know, depending on what, you know, cow prices are at that time, cattle prices, um, and then you move into, say, a commercial outfit that, you know, maybe looks the same from the outside as far as land value, but then maybe they make improvements and it starts really producing income. It is, is that taken into account in a 1031 exchange or is that just done through income tax through the income provided? I would say it's done through income tax, but I'm not, a, I'm not an accountant, so I can't answer yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I want to put you on the spot. We always, we yeah. always advise our clients. Uh, talk to your um, accountant. Hey, the accountant is the first person that we say, talk to your accountant and find out what your capital gains are going to be. Is it worth it for you to do a 1031 exchange or not? You know, we, we can, we can do so many things, but we're not an accountant. We're not attorneys. Um, we can help in a lot of situations, but we, we, we aren't those. <laughs> well, and so like, let's, let's jump into that a little bit because that's, that goes into like the tools and the belt. So if, if you are a landowner and you're moving to sale and, and this probably goes for any landowner for any land sale, but it's just a good piece of advice, right? Is who who are the professionals that you want in your pocket before you even make this decision? Well, definitely, like I said, you, especially if you've owned the property for a long period of time, market conditions change and your accountant is definitely one of the first people that you should be talking with to, you know, find out what your capital gains are, are going to end up being. And if there, if those capital gains are, high enough and you decide that you do want another investment um, to offset and defer those gains, then you would think about doing a 1031 exchange. That's when you list the property and we put that information in the listing agreement. We put that information language in any purchase agreement that comes up and 
if the seller decides that they are going to do a 1031 exchange, we start looking for that replacement property as soon as we get that property listed. So that on the day that it closes, we're not scrambling to you know, reach that 45 day identification period. In your area, you mentioned the, the, the road time that you put up as, as a land professional, right? Um, and especially with the case that, you know, you have low turnover on agricultural land and just the logistics, right? Um, you know, when you're working with land, it's a lot of acreage. So there's further distance to travel between opportunities. Have you seen, have you faced challenges in finding the, the, um, the alternative problem? What's the, what is the actual term? What am I looking for here? The, the, the term of the property you exchange with? You mean, how do you go about finding a replacement property? Replacement property. Oh, okay, that's it. I'm. Uh, you said it a few times. I just didn't have it in my in my lexicon at the time. So, it, does it become a challenge to find the replacement properties? Have you found any challenges with that? Well, sometimes it does. Like right now, it, to be honest with you, I am looking for a replacement property for. I help these people do an exchange on a property. Oh, I think it was a year ago, and they are now selling a different property that they own. They would like to find a replacement property in that similar area. And given what our market conditions are right now, I am not finding diddly and I don't have anything for them myself. So I have been on the phone calling all my colleagues, all my competition. I've been looking at all their websites. I've been looking at auctions. And a lot of people, especially if they're doing a 1031 exchange or they're an investor, they don't really like going to auctions because that typically means you're going to pay the highest price. And um, so, yeah, so sometimes it can be difficult. It depends on market conditions. Yeah. And right now, the, the thing that we're looking at countrywide is is low inventory, right? I mean, the, the, exactly. interest, the interest rate effect have, have, have put everybody on the sidelines, and it's, which is unique, right? Because with with interest rates rising you're looking at the possibility of real estate values maybe dropping a little bit plateauing not like a dive off a cliff or anything but just market adjustment to the interest rate but then the low inventory is like keeping everything propped up <laughs> exactly i was just going to say prices for land have not gone down yeah it is it is and, and which which is the the behind the scenes of it is really interesting the way that the inventory is functioning with interest rates but when it comes to the overhead view, it just is everybody made sort of those predictions at the beginning of the year is that there would be a plateau. It's just that, you know, the inner workings of what a plateau looks like has been kind of what we found out is, is where we are now, which is which is a pretty unique situation. I want to jump back. You mentioned going to D.C. And I think and you brought this up before we kind of started recording. And I think it's a really valuable conversation topic. And I don't want to, you know, need to not a huge political conversation other than the fact that it has been talked about. You mentioned 2015, which I was unaware of that it was on the docket, but I do know that in 2024, it's the 1031 exchanges kind of have a bullseye on them, right? With, with being looked at by Congress as something to get rid of. Well, and there, you know, and that just means that the organizations like, RLI and the National Association of Realtors, and there are several other organizations, Farm Bureau gets involved in, and a lot of other organizations um, to, there are a lot of states that don't have agricultural ground. And those 
like when we were in DC in 2015, you know, our concentration was talking to the legislators who really don't have a lot of agriculture in their area because they don't know what 1031s are all about. And so, yeah. And we did a huge letter writing campaign. I even, we, we just did one back in, I think it was 2020 or 2021. Um, I actually had everybody, I sent a letter even to our national land people um, with a sample letter to contact their, you know, legislators to encourage, <laughs> you know, them to keep 1031 exchanges in place. 1031s have been around since 1921. They work. And, you know, it, yeah, <laughs> it, it helps with economic growth, job creation, building wealth, you know, appreciation, you know, greater cash flow. And then, you know, we already talked about, you know, asset preservation and consolidation or diversification of your investments and relocation of investments. I mean, there's just a, a huge reason to keep 1031s in place. What sort of, and, and this is going to be, this is way more opinion than, you know, because I, I want to like preface it with, with saying that it's opinion, right? Because it, it, what I don't want is, you know, anybody to take it as gospel. But what's sort of your interpretation of what is sort of the misconception about 1031s that puts them on sort of the front line as something that people would want to get rid of? Oh, I, I think the misconception is that 1031s are used to eliminate taxes. And that's far from the truth. It's it's a deferment until that property is no longer income producing. And typically what you see 1031 exchanges for, it just you know, somebody buys a piece of property, they buy another piece of property, and it just keeps moving up the ladder as far as value. And that's how that job creation and building wealth and appreciation and leverage and all of those things just keeps going. And that's what keeps our economy strong. So that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to know. And, and you know, it, that's it's important to highlight that, right? Because there there easily is a misconception when you say tax deferment some people just click over and they just assume that you're avoiding taxes you're like no exactly you're gonna pay the taxes it just you know you're you're prolonging when you do it because you're moving investments and it's if you think about it you know it's it, i talked before sort of about uh you know 401k rollovers being similar and it and, and in a sense, it is you're you're changing an investment structure without paying the capital gains. Imagine if everybody had to pay their capital gains as soon as they did a 401k rollover, you know, something like that so, where you're changing the vehicle, but you're not paying the taxes. It's something that people do every day, but you don't think about it with land or you don't think about it with real estate. Yeah, I can't talk about 401ks. I, I don't know enough about them to. But, you know, the whole thing with deferring the tax is that, you know, it's keeping all that money going and you're paying taxes, you know, on that replacement property that probably has 
you know, will appreciate and value and you're paying more on taxes. And if they eliminate 1031s, the tax savings basically goes away or the, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're talking about a severe impact to any kind of landholder at that point. Exactly. You're not going to see nearly as much movement in those markets and you're going to see people stuck in investments that they can't manage or, or, you know, it's going to increase the propensity of people to be in situations where they have to fire sell. Right. Um, that, or, or you're, you know, you could cause someone if they want to get back into another piece of land, you know, and, and they're moving land around, you're talking, you know, multiple taxes upon taxes on the land they're that they're using. Um, and you know, does it, does it get explained in these situations that like, it doesn't have to involve say like agricultural land. I, and I think agricultural land is, is the highest impact area that I can think of. Um, but it also impacts commercial investment. It also impacts, you know, anything involving real estate on that level, there's an impact across the board. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's what I kind of rattled off when we first started. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, truly it it goes from any income producing property, but you know, it it also goes to like I said earlier, the oil and gas interest, mineral rights, water rights, air rights, easements you know, leases that have a remaining life with, you know, that include options of 30 years or more. Um, you know, it, there's just a whole list of properties that, you know, you can 1031 into. Yeah, I think the the end of the day word of, of uh, you know, in any legislatures, because it could be listening to the show is you're going to get your taxes eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Well, excellent. Well, hey, um, you know, I I booked you for for an hour here and we talked a little bit before the show. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but uh tell me a little bit about your area, what you work with. I wanna I want you to be able to talk about your own business there um in Minnesota. Oh gosh. Um I would say probably the bulk of what I do, probably 70 to 80% is agricultural ground. Um, but then I also work with hunting rec land, um, development ground, like I have a residential development piece um, for sale right now. Um, I help the landowner work through all of the planning and zoning to get it annexed into the city. I will have another residential development piece coming up. And, um, you know, also work with rural residential improved and unimproved um you know and then just from the developments land development standpoint you know it involves commercial land industrial institutional lakeshore you know it's you kind of cover the gamut we're in a you know i'm in a small small enough area where i can't put all my eggs in one basket unfortunately you know, well, you know, we we throw around the tagline a lot of national land that we are all things land. And I think that what you're saying is you kind of embody that there in Minnesota. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, um, yeah, I, I thank you very, very much for kind of talking through this. 1031s, you know, the, the we've we've sort of been moving towards launching a, uh, a you know, national land 1031 program. It's a big push of ours. Um, it's land 1031 and, and getting those resources together 
but it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. We haven't, you know, this is the first time we kind of run through it in depth and, and it's such a valuable tool for somebody to utilize. So I, I appreciate your time and your experience there um, because you have a wealth of it. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks, Mac. Thank you very much. And I'm going to put your uh, contact information in the show notes and uh, get you a link in there. Sounds good. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. This concludes episode number 77 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing 1031 exchanges with Nebraska and Minnesota licensed realtor and managing broker, Terry Jensen. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.